Last week, we started talking about the passion. And what we mean by that when we talk about the passion in in the history of the church and in a lot of mainline denominations and other movements is that last week of Christ where he gave of himself, where he suffered, endured, and permitted for us. And so the, the events of the passion begin with him entering into the city of Jerusalem during Palm Sunday and then all of the events from there through the end of Jesus' life and into his uh, death on the cross of Calvary. So last week we talked about how after being ushered into the city like a rock star, after being the nation's hero and coming in and having all the popular votes that he could ever want, Jesus basically sabotaged his own popularity by coming into the city and pointing out some of the things that were happening that shouldn't have been happening. He threw over the the money changers uh, tables in the temple. He taught in the temple and wagged his finger in the face of the religious leaders of his time, which was essentially the church of Jesus' day, and basically pointed out a lot of the things that they were doing that were not in line with what God wanted and what God was teaching. And so almost immediately, Jesus went from being hugely popular to being largely unpopular, especially with those who had power and authority in Jerusalem. And that set the stage, essentially, for what was to come. Today, we're going to pick up the story in Matthew chapter 26, and I'm going to read for you verses 1 through 16, and I want you to pay special attention, because the writer of Matthew does a great job of transitioning us from one thought to the next, helping us kind of get the feel that all of these events are happening, some in sequence, but some at the same time, and he kind of, he really employs good storytelling in the story. So let's read it together and see what we discover. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, Matthew again, 26, 1, he said to his disciples, as you know, Passover begins in two days, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. At that same time, the leading priests and elders were meeting at the residence of Caiaphas, the high priest, plotting how to capture Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the Passover celebration, they agreed, or the people may riot. Meanwhile, Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon, a man who had previously had leprosy. While he was eating, a woman came in with a beautiful alabaster jar of expensive perfume and poured it over his head. The disciples were indignant when they saw this. What a waste, they said. It could have been sold for a high price and and the money given to the poor. Jesus, aware of this, replied, Why criticize this woman for doing such a good thing to me? You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. She has poured this perfume on me to prepare my body for burial. I tell you the truth, wherever the good news is preached throughout the world, this woman's deed will be remembered and discussed. And you know what? The very fact that we're reading it proves that that statement was true. Amen? Here we are talking about it. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve disciples, went to the leading priest, asked, how much will you pay me to betray Jesus to you? And they gave him 30 pieces of silver. From that time on, Judas began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. I believe the author uses some interesting statements to lead us to the, the culmination of the story, which is why Judas did what he did. The first word I want you to look at with me, or rather the first phrase, is that phrase, at the same time, you know, and, and really, there's, it, it's kind of mentioned twice, at the same time, meanwhile, those are kind of the same phrases. Does anybody remember in the old westerns that used to watch on TV, they would say, meanwhile, back at the ranch, anybody remember that? 
Some of you are as old as me. It makes me feel so much better, you know. Um, now, you know, none of us are as old as Pat, apparently, according to Chris. But, you know, we're all getting there, you silver fox, you. Anyway, um, meanwhile, back at the ranch. And so there's this at-the-same-time at kind of expression that leads us to where Jesus is at. So, in other words, while Jesus was finishing up his teaching and telling the disciples that he would be handed over and he would be crucified. While that was happening, this meeting took place. And, and the, leading, the, the leading priests and the elders get together, not in the temple, but in the home of Caiaphas. Now, interestingly enough, <clears throat> the Bible doesn't here say the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the Essenes. It doesn't mention which political party or which religious sect was getting together. Because in Jesus' time, they were kind of the same thing. It's a good thing we're over that today, huh? Anyway, in Jesus' time, they had these three different separations within the Jewish religious uh, establishment. And, and interestingly enough, in this situation, none of those are mentioned. It simply says the leading priests and the elders. In other words, everybody united to come against Jesus. In this situation, with a common foe who was threatening their power and their control over the people that they were supposed to be shepherding in God's name, they all decided, we're going to throw all of our differences aside, and we're going to come together and have a meeting. And this wasn't a respectable meeting, mind you. If it would have been a respectable meeting, it would have happened in the temple with official uh, people kind of overlooking it. But this was a meeting in someone's home. This was one of those meetings after the meetings. You know what I'm saying? You ever been to a meeting? after the meeting where you go to the meeting and everybody kind of is in agreement and everybody thinks they know what's going on and then the meeting after the meeting happens and you come to the next real meeting and suddenly everything's changed and somehow nobody remembers ever being at the meeting after the meeting well this is that kind of meeting in the most nefarious way possible because they're not here to figure out how to arrest Jesus which we all know is what happened they're not here to figure out how to get him in a trial situation before the temple guard or before um, even uh, Pilate himself. They're not here to figure out how to get Jesus prosecuted to the full extent of the law. What does it say? It says they're there to secretly figure out how to take Jesus aside and make him disappear. What we're talking about is they're going to disappear Jesus. That, that's the terminology they use on TV today, right? They're going to just make him go away, and no one will ever know where the body was buried. How many of you know where all the bodies are buried? Just raise your hand. I want to know who to be afraid of. This is that kind of meeting. They're just going to make Jesus vanish. And so this meeting is happening, and they agree something has to be done, but we don't want to do it during the Passover because the people may riot. And while that meeting is, happening, is beginning to happen, Jesus is finishing up his teaching. And interestingly enough, ironically enough, Jesus knew more about what was going to happen than they did. Because while they're planning a meeting to secretly steal him away and kill him, Jesus is predicting his own future. He predicts what? That he's going to be handed over, in other words, betrayed, and that he's going to be crucified. Which of the two got their will, got their way? Which of the two was right? Was it, the, was it the religious leaders? No, it was Jesus. So even at the very beginning of this story, Jesus already knew what was going to happen. The religious leaders were, were preparing themselves for a game that Jesus wasn't even willing to play. They had lost before they ever even got a chance to start. They had no idea what was going to happen in the next week. But Jesus knew, and he permitted it. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. So you tell me, who's really in control of this situation? 
Meanwhile is the next word we're going to look at. And of course, meanwhile is another one of those words that, that simply implies that while this was happening, this other thing was happening. And so while they were still meeting... Jesus then goes to Bethany, which was about two miles from Jerusalem, we think. And after teaching, he was staying there or at least eating with um, um, someone named Simon, whom we're told was a leper. Now, lepers in the time of Jesus were, were in the worst possible situation you could be in. Not only were they sick with a disease that couldn't be cured, not only were they looking forward to an excruciatingly painful death with literally pieces of their skin and parts of their body falling off as they got sicker, but they were outcasts in society. You weren't allowed to be with your family while you suffered. Boy, that brings some reality to our present situation, doesn't it? How many loved ones do we know that have had to suffer in hospitals without their family around them because of this COVID thing? Well, these lepers in Jesus' time understood what that felt like. In fact, they weren't even allowed to be in the city. They lived outside the city walls. If you were a leper, you lived outside the city walls and you got to eat and you got to use whatever people threw away. That was your livelihood. It was a horrible fate. And Simon was a leper, but Jesus healed him. So I would imagine that Jesus is at Simon's house because Simon loved Jesus with all of his heart because Jesus had done something incredible for him. And so as as Simon is there and Jesus is in his house having this meal, they begin to to eat. And and as he's eating, this woman comes in with some expensive perfume. And and, and it's even in a beautiful bottle. You know, the the historian um, takes the time to notice that it was in this beautiful alabaster bottle. Do you think that's one of the ways that that perfume companies make their perfume more desirable is put it in weird containers? Does anybody remember, did anybody else's dad have that bottle of cologne? sitting on the dresser that, had, that was shaped in the shape of a car. Anybody ever see? I, had, I always wondered. I tried to play with that a few times, and my dad's like, don't touch that, you know? And, and the funny part is, I'd take the lid off, and it stunk to high heaven. Man, it was horrible stuff. And my dad never smelled like that, so I know for a fact he never used it. It was probably a Christmas gift or something like that. Anyway, they seem to put perfumes in weird bottles to make them more appealing. But anyway, apparently that was true then, because even the bottle itself shouted, I'm expensive. And so this woman comes in, and she douses Jesus with this beautiful perfume, and it's this wondrous act of love and adoration for Jesus, an act of worship. And almost immediately, the disciples begin to object. Almost immediately, they become indignant, and they, they, they call this show of love and adoration that she committed toward Jesus a waste. And basically start talking about how this perfume should have been sold and how the value of the perfume was more valuable than the act that she had just committed. Now let's just put something to rest. I know that since I was a kid, I've heard people talk about this text as being an indicator that it's okay for Christians to neglect the poor as long as they're tithing, as long as they're giving their money where it should be, and all that stuff. Let me just settle that right now. It is never okay for us to neglect the poor. Can I just be clear on that? Jesus was always for the poor. He always believed that anybody who could help should help. And we are in a position today where many of us have the ability, if at all possible, to help. And we should help in any way that we can. The church should never forget about the poor. That's not what's being discussed here. This was not a contribution to Jesus' ministry. And that's where the disciples got it wrong. This was an act of love and adoration by a woman who brought what she had and gave it to Jesus. And Jesus saw something very different than what the disciples saw. Jesus saw a beautiful gift 
a sacrifice where the disciples saw only the waste of something that they could have spent. The woman, on the other hand, saw acceptance from Jesus, but condemnation from the disciples. And let me tell you something. This just kind of came to me this morning when we were going through this. If the church of Jesus Christ is ever condemning somebody that Jesus is accepting, then we got a problem. Do I need to say that again? If we are ever in a situation where we as the people of God are are throwing condemnation on somebody that Jesus has opened his arms wide to, then we got a problem. That is not Christ-like. It is not Jesus. And we need to be careful. So the disciples are ready to condemn her. Jesus is accepting her because Jesus valued the giver over the gift. That's what it boils down to. What was in the jar was not nearly as valuable to Jesus as the person carrying the jar into the room. The the disciples missed this and, and were angry that Jesus would allow someone to be so wasteful. And you know what? I think this is where a lot of us get it wrong even today. Sometimes we have a tendency to judge someone's value based on the gift that they're able to bring or or what they can bring to the table or how they can help us or or what they can do for us. When instead, like Jesus, we should be looking at the person for who they are and giving them the value that God gives them. Uh, churches do this, but, but it happens in homes as well. I, I don't know about you, but my mom used to put on the best Christmas shindig ever. My mom made Christmas special for us for so many years, and she did it by using the whole idea of wonder. She never talked about Santa Claus, don't get me wrong, but when we would go to bed at night, there was nothing under the tree. When we got up in the morning, there was everything under the tree. I mean, it was this huge pile of, of presents and gifts. And can I just confess to you right now, I love getting presents. I love unwrapping presents. Even if I don't need it, I love to unwrap it. I've been tempted at times after my wife did all the work to unwrap my children's presents because I enjoy it so much. Never have done it. Been tempted. I said tempted, yet without sin. I love getting presents. And my mom, man, she used to put so much thought into pre- my wife does too. She put so much thought into presents and we would rip through those presents and open them all up and it lasted about eight seconds and I'm sure my mom was sitting there going, this took me like three weeks to put together and here it's done, you know? It's gone. But the one thing that we always tended to forget about was getting mom something. And so a lot of times the presents that my mom got from me, especially, were like some last minute paper thing that I cut out, clipped together, glued together or taped or I don't even know. And I'd throw it in some kind of package and give it to her, and, and she would open it. And I would sit there going, oh, please let her like it, because I didn't even think about it. I didn't put any thought into it. It was a terrible gift. And you know what my mother would do every time I, she opened it? Whether it was something I threw together at the last minute, or maybe one of the years dad bought something and said, here, give this to your mother. No matter what the gift was, she always opened it, and her face would light up. And she would value whatever was in that package extremely highly. She'd put it somewhere prominent in the house where everybody could see what Jeff got or what David got or what Ben got her. And there were times I was like, mom, can you please take that down? I don't want everybody to see how lame that gift was. Put it away. It's a picture of me from the third grade and I'm in fifth grade now, you know, take that out of the, just put it away somewhere. Don't let everybody see it. I was ashamed of the gift, but she valued it. Do you know why? Because it came from someone she loved. I think that's the way God sees us. And no matter how last minute, no matter how lame, no matter how inadequate we think the gifts are that we have that we can bring to God, I think God treasures those gifts 
because he treasures the giver more than he does what they have to give. And friends, I want to say to you right now, if there's anybody hearing the sound of my voice today here in this room over the internet or a month from now that thinks that you can't come to the throne of God because your gifts, the gifts you have to offer, the talents or abilities or money or whatever it might be, if you think you don't have anything that he would want, you are wrong. Because God is more interested in you coming to the table than he is with what you have to bring to the table. He just wants to sit across from you and be in relationship. He wants your love and your adoration. And friends, that's what the disciples missed. You see, this woman came to Jesus with what she had, and she poured it out, and all they could see was the dollar signs. They didn't see the affection of a woman who wanted to have relationship with the Creator, with Jesus. I'm here to tell you, whatever you have to bring, it's enough. And God will love the giver more than he loves the gift. Listen, the issue that we don't really understand is that God doesn't need the things that we have. In fact, I read a scripture this week during my devotions, and it fit right into this. And I'd never really put this scripture in context. How many of you have read the scripture, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills? You ever heard that? Any you church people that grew up in the church? I've always heard that. And, you know, we, we modernized it a few years ago. God owns the Cadillacs in a thousand driveways, you know, because the cow thing nobody really understood. And you know what? That has been touted by prosperity gospel people to to mean that, you know, anything you want, God can give it to you and he's going to give you everything you want. Let me put it in context. Listen to what the the rest, not the rest of the psalm, but some more of the verses in the psalm kind of set this up. Psalm chapter 50, starting in verse 8. I have no complaint about your sacrifices, God says. He's talking directly to Israel. Or the burnt offerings that you constantly offer. But I do not need, listen to this, I do not need the bulls from your barns. Or the goats from your pens. For all the animals of the forest are mine. And I own the cattle of a thousand hills. I know every bird on the mountains. And all the animals in the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For all the world is mine and everything in it. Listen, God doesn't need our stuff. Jesus didn't see the price tag on that alabaster jar or what was in it. What he saw was the devotion and the love of a woman who was willing to come to him. And we need to see people the same way when they bring their gifts, no matter how lame, no matter how inadequate. And we need to see ourselves that way, no matter how lame or how inadequate we feel our gifts may be. And I'm here to tell you that that if you bring those gifts to Jesus you will discover that he will reveal to you that your gifts are far greater than you ever imagined because the best person you will ever be will be the person that you are when you're sitting across the table from Jesus. That is the best you will ever be. We need to be willing to love the giver and value the giver over the gift. Jesus goes on to point out that the woman is essentially preparing his body for burial. Again, demonstrating that he, he knew the plan. He knew what was going to happen. And literally that he was permitting all of this to happen. He knew the plan. He knew what was going to come. And so he permitted it. And that leads us to our last transitional word. The word is simply then. It's another transitional word designed to kind of move the story along. To help us to see that what came before happened so that this could happen. And, and what happens now is something horrible. Judas who it would appear that that he's been trying to find his place in all of this, to figure out where he stands with Jesus, and apparently was driven more by his greed and, and his desire for money than anything else. Because when he saw what Jesus did in this instance, 
and he saw that Jesus did not share his values, when he saw that Jesus didn't value money above other things, Judas decided to go and do the thing that shouldn't have been done. He went to the the leading priests. He went to the leaders of the Jewish faith, and, and he said to them, what do I have to do? What will you give me if I betray Jesus? And of course, as the scripture said, they gave him 30 pieces of silver. Listen, he looked for a way to cash out of the situation. And he makes a deal that will essentially fulfill what Jesus predicted all the way back at what we started reading. He made a deal that would allow him to hand over Jesus so that he could be crucified. Once again, Jesus knew what was going to take place. And he let it happen. Listen, throughout the Passion Week, we need to understand that Jesus was not a victim. He was in control. Even the leading priests and the elders had no idea how the week would play out because their plan was to make him disappear quietly, and yet he got the most public execution of all time. They were scheming and and trying to win a game, as I said before, that Jesus wasn't even willing to play and had already won. All of his suffering, all that he endured, it all happened because he permitted it, because he allowed it. Jesus' passion, his his desire, and his commitment to us was not about power. It wasn't about authority. It wasn't about money. It wasn't about control. It wasn't about any of the things that we fight over today. It was all about you and me. His passion, his desire, his commitment, what he suffered, what he endured, what he allowed, what he permitted was all about you and me because he wanted to have a relationship with us. And for that, he went to the cross. Friends, Jesus was in control. And I would pray that today and every day from now, not only through Easter, but for the rest of our lives, that we would allow God to be in control of us. Because if we will allow him to lead us and guide us, then I believe That whole cattle on a thousand scriptures, uh, the way that we take it, maybe will come true. God will give us everything that we need to follow the plan and the will that he has for us. It doesn't mean that we're going to be wealthy someday. But it does mean that if we're following his leading, then he will provide everything that we need to get there. No matter how meager our gifts may seem. So today, as we continue this journey together, I I know last week I asked you to compare yourself to Matthew 23 to make sure that you were ready to celebrate Easter. Today, I want you to prepare yourself in another way. Um, I want you to think about a couple of things. Would you bow your heads with me and just consider a couple things with me? First and foremost, is there any situation in your life where you witness someone offering all that they had to Jesus And instead of looking at the value of the person, you had a a tendency to look at the value of the gift instead. And maybe you judged that gift. Maybe you, you thought they used it improperly. Maybe you had questions about it. Whatever the case may be. Has there ever been a time when you valued the gift over the giver? Because I'm here to tell you as a church, as a pastor, as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, I don't ever want to be in a situation where I'm affiliated in the least with anybody who would rather have the gift than the giver. I believe churches that that value the the gifts that people give over the person are running off the rails. 
and there's only bad things in their future. I believe that churches that value the giver will come to, to, come to find that, that if we follow Jesus and if we value people, that God will provide for all of our needs through his riches and glory. Has there ever been a time when you valued the gift over the giver? I'd also like you to consider, is, has there ever been a time that you didn't feel that you could come to God because what you had to offer was so weak or so lame? Or maybe you thought he wouldn't accept it or it wasn't good enough. If that's you today, I just want to remind you that Jesus values you more than what you can bring to the table. God didn't save us because he needed us. He saved us because he loved us. And I want you to know that whatever you bring to the table, God will accept that and he will love you for it. And he will help you to become, through the power of his spirit living inside of you, the the best possible version of yourself that could ever exist if you let him, if you're willing to follow. So if you're in that place today where you're reluctant to come to Jesus because of your baggage, because of your gifts, because of anything that, that, that has to do with you, come anyway. Take that step. Have courage. Come talk to one of us about it. We would love to help you to understand God's love for you. God in heaven, I I come before you right now and I I thank you again, Lord, for the example that Jesus set for us. In three short years, he taught us so much about how to live as your children. And this example that he's given us, this this passage of scripture teaches us that, that all throughout this situation, even though terrible things were being plotted against him, both at the beginning of the story that we read today and at the end, that he stayed the course. He knew he would suffer, and he endured that suffering. In fact, the greatest suffering of all was probably just knowing that that people that supposedly loved him were going to betray him. But he endured it, and he permitted it, and he did it for you, or for, for all of us. Because your plan, God, was that none should, should um, have to perish, but that all would come to repentance. And I pray that you would help us as a church and us as individual followers of Christ, that we would constantly be willing to see the value in the person and not just the gift, and that we would accept those that Jesus has accepted and never condemn that which God wants. And, and Father, we know that you desire for every single person that lives to come to know you. Give us the ability to love, even those who are hard to love at times, to accept them, not their sin, but to accept them and to and allow them to be a part of our family as we become more like you together. God, I ask that in the coming week we would all consider um, all that you have done for us and what you endured for our sins so that we could be your children and help us to live in light of that sacrifice. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.